you this morning. Thank you for having me in your homes. For those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Daniel Golan. I'm a longtime friend of Pastor Sam and a big fan of this church. And I just uh, I feel honored that I get to be here and open up the Bible for you this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27, as we're going to be spending our time together. And so let me read it for us, and then I will pray. This is God's word to us this morning. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Father, we thank you for speaking to us this morning. Lord, you are with us in this place, in our homes, in our Hearts, And we thank you, Lord, that you are continually working in us and revealing to us your majesty. Father, I pray, give us a, a glimpse of your glory this morning. God, we pray that you would help us see you for the beautiful Savior that you are. God, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The question I want to answer this morning is why did John write this letter? Why did John write 1 John? In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis examines the way the devil, the enemy, tries to hurt Christians, the church, and would-be Christians. In his letters, he pretends a senior demon named Screwtape is writing to his demonic prodigy, Wormwood. And Screwtape is trying to disciple this demonic prodigy on how to hurt a young man. He gives him a number of different strategies. He says, you should blind him to sin. You should lull him into lukewarm complacency. You should help him chase worldly happiness. And so why does John write his letter? Because while C.S. Lewis's 
letters, these screw tape letters, are fictitious. Satan is real, and he does want to destroy you. And so John writes against those things. He writes against lack of repentance. He writes in 1 John verse 8 and 9, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not on us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He writes against lukewarm complacency. He says in 1 John 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He writes against the belief that this world can fully satisfy you. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And yet, the devil has one more weapon. There's one more way the devil will try to destroy you. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis put it. Here's screw tape writing. The young man, he says, is now getting to know more Christians every day, and very intelligent Christians too. For a long time, it will be quite impossible to remove spirituality from his life. Very well then, we must corrupt it. The world and the flesh have failed us. A third power remains, and a success of this third kind is the most glorious of all. A spoiled saint makes better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or debauchee. If someone follows Jesus, if someone already believes in Jesus, Screwtape says, change what they believe. Corrupt it. Twist the truth. Distort what is really true. And so why does John write this letter? Well, fortunately for us, John actually tells us directly. He tells us in 1 John chapter 5. He says this, verse 13. I write these things to you. I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing these things not to know if you have eternal life, but I'm writing things so that you know that you have eternal life. You already have it. So you see, there's going to be people who will try to pull you away, who will try to drag you away, who will try to deceive you and twist who Jesus is. And John says, they're wrong. They're wrong. Stand firm. Don't move. Don't drift away. You already have eternal life. And so there's three things John's going to give us this morning. Three things that will help our feet to sink down into this cement of truth. He's going to give us distinctives. He's going to give us deceits. And he's going to give us defenses. First, Look at the distinctives. What is it that makes you different? Go back to our passage, verse 18. Children, John writes. This is probably John's way of speaking in an endearing term. He loves this church. They're his his children, but it's also probably a way of warning them. It's a way of warning them that they're vulnerable. They're children. Why are they vulnerable? Well, he says, he says, children, it is the last hour. It's the last hour. Yes, I know this is written almost 
2,000 years ago, and yet we are still in this last hour. How can that be? How can an hour last 2,000 years, you might ask? Well, when John speaks about an hour, when John speaks about this last hour, when other Bible writers speak about these last days, they're not giving us necessarily a specific amount of time as much as they're giving us a type of time. It's a type or an age of increased intensity. Look at what characterizes this last hour. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. We read this. And in these last days, there's that language again. In these last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. You see, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he poured out his Holy Spirit. He gave his spirit to those who follow him. And so we have this spirit, this power in us. So the question remains then, well, how does that make us vulnerable? Well, you see, while we have been given the spirit and while Satan has been defeated on the cross, he decided that he would go down swinging. He would try to drag as many down with him. And so while good increased in the world, evil also increased. He says this in 1 John. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, I know you would love for me to tell you who the antichrist is. The reality is, we don't know. You might assume it's Bill Gates, it's Donald Trump, it's Netflix, it's the internet. We don't know. The reality is the church has guessed Many times over, and they've been wrong time and time again. They guessed it was Hitler, it was Stalin, it was Mussolini, it was the Pope. We don't know. But what we do know is that someone will come. Someone will be sent by Satan who will try to oppose Christ and replace Christ. Now, more pressing for us, though, is the immediate danger that there are many antichrists. There are many small a antichrists, if you will. Some people who come in the same spirit as the antichrist. They come to try to oppose Christ and also replace him. Now, we're going to look at how they try to do that in a second. But first, notice something. Notice where they come from. Verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. See, what's so troubling to John's church is that these antichrists, these people who opposed Christ, these people who were trying to twist the message of who Jesus really is, They came from the church. They served in children's ministry. 
They were in the small group. They served communion. They received the Bible teaching. And all of a sudden, they leave. And so John's church is wondering, did, did we miss something? Maybe they know something that, that we don't know. Maybe they've received some special thing. And if I leave and or if they tell me what this thing is, I'll, I'll have this new experience. They feel uncertain. They're curious. The ground seems a little bit shaky. And so why does John write his letter? Stand firm. Don't move. Don't follow after them. You see John saying, they're not of us. They're not. Because if they were of us, they would have stayed here. They would have stayed with us. Only those who persevere to the end will be truly saved. How do I know, though, that I won't be deceived? How do I know that I can't be tricked and led astray? Well, John says that there's something different about you. There's something distinct from you. There's something really different that is nothing like those other people. You have something that they don't have. What is it? Look at verse 20. It says, You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Six times, John uses the we or us language, and six times he uses the them or they language. It's us and them. It's them and us. And what do we have that they don't have? It's the anointing. It's the anointing. Now, this anointing is not some special gift, only a select number of Christians receive. It's not some special knowledge a few Christians receive. It's a knowledge that has been given to all Christians. And what is it that they know? What does this anointing allow them to understand? Look at verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So what is it that they know? Well, helpful for us is that John uses that same word anointing in his gospel. If you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, John describes Jesus healing a man born blind. Listen to these words, John 9 verse 6. Verse 3 first. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples were asking him, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? Because one of them had to have sinned because he's blind. Jesus says, no, 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 it's not that this man sinned or his parents might sin, but so that I might show my glory through him. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed there's our word. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Now go to verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe in this coming one from God who would save the world, who would save sinful humanity? In verse 36, he answered him, 
And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him. Do you understand what happens now when we are given the anointing? We see Jesus for who he really is. We see that he is our God, our hope, our Savior. And we don't just see him. We're then led to worship him. We adore him. He becomes precious to us. He's a delight to us. We don't want to go anywhere else because it is in Jesus that we have everything we need. God's anointing, God's gift of the Holy Spirit is the act that enables us to stand firm, to hold fast. See, we like to talk about the perseverance of the saints, and that's right, that only those who make it to the end, only those who hold fast to their faith in Jesus till the end are saved. But we should also talk about the preservation of the saints. It's God who holds on to his children. I love the hymn, that says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. Why does John write his letter? So there's these people, they're distinct from you, first off. And secondly, though, they will try to deceive you. They'll try to deceive you. Look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Attacking John's church, facing John's church, is the heretical teaching of Gnosticism. Of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is the lie that tried to separate the Christ from Jesus. This word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the anointed one. The Old Testament spoke of a coming Messiah, of the Christ, who would fulfill all of God's promises. And so Gnosticism said, therefore, well, Jesus was the Christ, but just for a little bit of time. You see, they think that Jesus probably would have received the Christ spirit likely at his baptism. And then when Jesus would have finished his work on earth prior to the cross, Before he was crucified, that Christ spirit must have left him. And so therefore, it was not the Messiah that died. It was not the Christ that died. It was not God hanging on the cross. It was just Jesus. And Jesus is not the Son of God, they teach. Jesus is not God, and God certainly did not come in the flesh. I think a helpful summary is... 2 John, verse 7. I think this is Gnosticism summed up in one verse. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. 
The Christ did not come in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, we have to be careful here, right? Just because every person here or some person here might disagree with you about what the Bible teaches doesn't automatically make them an antichrist, right? Just because Sally disagrees about infant baptism, which they shouldn't, children or infants rather shouldn't be baptized, but just because Sally disagrees about that, just because Sally disagrees about end times, just because Sally disagrees about gifts of the Holy Spirit or eldership doesn't mean that she's an antichrist. The church has disagreed about these issues for, well, some of them for almost 2,000 years, and yet they've been able to be unified. However, when someone disagrees about who Jesus is, then everything is at stake. If you disagree about who Jesus is, then you're disagreeing about who God is, and you're disagreeing about how God chose to save the world. Everything is at stake. Look at verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son, though, has the Father also. Now, Gnosticism is not a first-century Palestinian problem or exclusively a first-century Palestinian problem. It's a Vancouver 21st-century issue as well. See, there are many today who would love to affirm that Jesus is such and such and such, and they'll agree with some things, but at the same time, they'll make him less than he truly is. They'll devalue him. They'll appreciate him. They'll kind of put him on the same level as many others. So yeah, they'll approve of great teacher Jesus. They approve of moral example Jesus. They approve of social reform Jesus. They approve of private Jesus, right? I'm fine with Jesus if you keep your Jesus in your own little world, but don't give me your Jesus. But the Jesus they will not approve of is the every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord Jesus. See, I think the bigger problem, though, is that some of these same Gnostic ideas are being spread amongst those who also profess to be Christians. Just so you know how big of an issue I think this is getting, in 2019, Amazon's top-selling book in the subcategories of Christology and Christian ethics, so of who Christ is and on how Christians should live, was Richard Rohr's Universal Christ. According to 1 John, and let me try to say this gently because maybe some of you have felt nurtured by Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is an antichrist. It's interesting that in his book, which is a thick book, he does not once say that Jesus is God. Instead, he will say Christ is God. He says this, let me quote him. The Christ mystery is not a one-time event, but an ongoing process throughout time. Essentially, what Richard Rohr wants to say is that I am Christ, you are Christ, we all are Christ. 
You want to know something interesting? He dedicates his book to his dog, Venus, who he says, I quote, was Christ for him. Now, literally, the only thing Richard Rohr has going for him is that he is a dog person and not a cat person, or else he would be the Antichrist. But look, that is not cute. That's Antichrist. That is demonic. That comes from the pit of hell. He will go on to say this. Let me quote. Jesus' death was God's great act of solidarity and not some bloody transaction required by God's offended justice in order to rectify the problem of sin. The cross did not solve the problem of sin. Now, if there has ever been a time I would like to use two words that start with B and S, it is right now. It's bologna sandwich, okay? It's, it's broccoli soup. It's disgusting. This is, it's terrible. This is a lie. This comes from the father of lies. Look, look, this is though what happens when you deny that Jesus is God. When you deny that Jesus is God, you no longer require that God pay the penalty that God requires. When you deny that Jesus is the Christ, then God no longer has to suffer for human sin. When you pull on the thread of who Jesus is, all of Christianity unravels. Now, I would love a hunting license right about now to go out hunting down all of these false teachers, but that's actually not why John writes his book. John doesn't write his book to tell his church that they're wrong as much as he writes his book to tell them that the church is right. John writes his book to say, you have eternal life. Stand firm. Hold fast. Don't go after them. They're distinct. They try to deceive you. But lastly, John says, we have defenses. We have defenses. In this passage, John gives us two ways we can fight against the lies of the enemy. He gives us two commands, two imperatives in this passage. The first one comes in verses 24 and 25. Listen to this. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Our first defense is to abide in the word. John says, look, you have heard it. Let what you heard in the beginning abide in you. What they heard in the beginning is the gospel. It's the truth about Jesus, and we have that truth preserved for us. We have it written down in our Bibles. John's saying, hold fast to this. This is your defense against the enemy. This is our sword. The Bible is not some tool reserved for some new Christian. It's not for someone who just wants to know about who Jesus is and who is unfamiliar with Christianity, nor is the Bible for those who are mature Christians only. It's not just for those who who want to be challenged in their faith. The Bible is for everyone. It's not optional. 
and it's not occasional either. This is not something we, we turn to only in desperate times. John says, abide in the word. Read it. Soak it up. Meditate upon it. Study it. Memorize this. Charles Spurgeon used to say that when you cut him, he bled Bible. That should be true of this church, Westland. Abide in this book. Hold fast to the truths in this book. If the devil is going to try and change what you believe about Jesus, then you need to know who Jesus is. And you know it by reading this book. My fear today is that we can become more Athenian rather than Berean. What I mean by that is in Acts chapter 17, we're given two contrasting cultures, the Athenian culture and the Berean culture. Listen to how Luke describes each of these cultures. He says, Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now listen to what he says about the Bereans. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. See, my fear is that we may become more Athenian. We may be concerned with the newest trends, the newest ideas in Christianity. We want new spiritual insights. Instead of being Berean and going, what does this say? Is that true? Let me hold fast to what I know God has given us. Why did John write this letter? He says, abide in the word. But secondly, he also says, abide in him. Abide in him. Verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. And John's not telling him you don't need any sort of teaching here. He's saying you don't need any new teaching. Right? John is writing to them. He's He's teaching them, but he says you don't need anything new in order to be given the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You already have that. He says, verse, he goes on, he says, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Abide in the word and abide in him. Because you see, Satan knows that he can still corrupt someone whose head is in this book. He just turns Bible reading into head knowledge. He turns Bible reading about Jesus into this pursuit of knowledge, and Jesus becomes distant and impersonal. Listen again to how Screwtape teaches his demonic prodigy. He says, our third aim is to destroy the devotional life. Destroy the devotional life. For the real presence of the enemy, that's God, the real presence of our God, otherwise experienced by men in prayer and sacrament, we substitute a merely probable, remote, shadowy, and uncouth figure, one who spoke a strange language and died a long time ago. Such an object cannot, in fact, be worshipped. See, we do not read the Bible for itself. We read the Bible for relationship. We read the Bible to be with our Savior. 
We read the Bible not just for knowledge. We push on knowledge. We read for knowledge, but we push and push and push until it leads into delight. Until we go, yes, this is my God and I love him. And I don't need to go anywhere else. I have eternal life right here beside my Savior. Let me end with a story. There was a famous painter who used to love painting with his son. He used to teach his son. They would spend hours together painting. Except then it became time for his son to go to war. It was the First World War and his son was sent off. A few years later, a man knocked at the father's home. The father opened the door and it was a someone dressed up in the garments of a soldier. The soldier asked, excuse me, do you know uh, this man? And the father said, yes, that, that, that's my son. The soldier go, went on to tell him, well, I'm sorry, but your son is dead. Your son died actually saving my life. He, he took a bullet for me so that I might live. But the, the, the soldier said, but I know that you and your son used to paint together and you used to love spending that time and actually your son began to teach me how to paint and, and I actually tried to paint a picture of him one time. It, it, here it is, it's, it's, it's not very impressive and it wasn't. He showed the father a picture of the son and it was ordinary, very simplistic, one-dimensional, but it meant a lot to the father. Thank you, the father's son. This, this, this means so much. I, I, will, I will cherish this. So the soldier left. Now, a number of years later after that, the father died. And because the father was a famous and brilliant artist, a number of his works of art, his paintings, were going to be auctioned off at a famous auction house. And so many wealthy collectors packed into this auction house, getting ready to bid on these incredible works of art. And the auctioneer actually begins by reading a letter. He says, the first painting to be auctioned off is actually a painting of this man's son, of his son. So the painter pulls back, uh, the auctioneer pulls back the curtain and, and the crowd looks at the painting and they go, they laugh. <laughs> it was so bland. It was so unimpressive. No one came to buy that. So the auctioneer begins asking for bids. Who will give me $1,000, $1,000, going once. Come on, $1,000, give me $1,000. Everyone just chuckles. $500, okay, fine. Who will give me $500? No one wants it, except all of nowhere. Someone yells, I will have it. It was the soldier. The soldier had come to bid on his own painting, a painting of the picture of this friend who saved his life. I want that picture. Here, take all that I have. I brought, I brought my month's income. Take it all. Please just give me that painting. I want that painting of the sun. And so the auctioneer slams down his gavel. Sold. It's then that the auctioneer says, an auction over. The crowd is enraged. What, what is going on? We, we came to bid on all the other works of art. What about all the other paintings? That, that's why they're, we're here. And so the auctioneer pulls out another envelope. This time he reads a portion of the father's will. 
And he says this, whoever takes my son gets it all. Whoever takes my son gets it all. That's Christianity. And that's why John wrote his letter. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for not sparing your one and only son. Lord, you gave him to us so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have everlasting life. Lord, we thank you and we pray, Lord, help us. Help us to stand firm. Help us to not drift away chasing new trends and ideologies, Lord. Help us to stand firm on the faith once delivered for all the saints. Help us to cling to our true Savior, Jesus, who is God incarnate. Lord, we love him, and we want to love him even more. Be with us as we go this week, Lord. May we live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.